Good morning. This morning in our journey through Matthew's Gospel, we come to two of the strangest incidents in that record of Jesus' life. The boy the disciples could not heal and the way Jesus pays the temple tax. Disciples who only a few chapters before were given authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction, just weren't able to do it in the case of this young demon-possessed boy. And Peter is instructed to go fishing and to use what he finds in the mouth of the fish to pay the temple tax. What is going on here? Well, friends, I take it I don't have to remind you that God has given us his written... <coughs> given us his written word for a purpose. It's not simply for entertainment or for the increase of knowledge. It is to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's so that we might be complete, equipped for every good work which he prepared for us to do. But taking that step uh, a step further, there's an almost infinite range of possibilities for things that God could say to us in order to accomplish this purpose. So why these things? Sharpen the focus on Matthew's Gospel a little. Of all the myriads of things that Jesus did and said, why did God cause these things to be recorded for us? So as we approach this passage this morning, we should expect that God has something important to say to us in these words, even if at first glance they seem strange. What we have here is not just another account of catastrophic failure on the part of the disciples who still haven't got it, and it's not just a magic trick performed to startle us and make us ask, how did he do that? There's a very important lesson for us to learn here. So will you pray with me that God might open his word to us this morning as we read and think together as modern day disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word. You not only caused it to be written for us, but preserved for us, that we here on this day might hear what you have to say to us in these words. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you might so work in our hearts, taking from us all distraction, and enable us to hear your voice, to know what you would say to us, and to be shaped and directed by it. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to uh, Matthew 17, and we continue from verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him and said, Sir, have mercy on my son, because he's an epileptic and he suffers badly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they were not able to heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and cast him out. And the child was healed from that very hour. Coming to him privately, the disciples said, Why were we unable to cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your oligopistian, your little faith, 
For truly I say to you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from there to there, and it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible for you. When they gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. But when they arrived in Capernaum, those who collect the didrachma, the temple tax, came to Peter and said, your teacher pays the tax, doesn't he? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus came up to him and asked, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect tribute and taxes? From their sons or from others? He answered, from others. Jesus said to him, then the sons are indeed free. But in order that we might not cause them to stumble, go to the sea, cast in the line and take up the first fish you catch. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a stator. Use that to give to them for you and for me. Well, after the astounding glory of the transfiguration, Jesus and his three disciples descend again into the world of pain and suffering. He's barely reached the crowd before it presses in on him. The broken man, desperate and despairing, here with his very last hope, falling down on his knees and begging Jesus to do something about the tragedy that seems to overshadow his entire life, but even more tragically, the life of his son. He'd kept him alive so far when he'd been thrown into the fire during one of his seizures or the water. He'd been guarding and protecting him all his life so far. Intense care after, over a, a prolonged period. But the day would surely come when he wouldn't be there to rescue him. He had to do more than this. And so he brought him to Jesus' disciples. He'd been told, no doubt, that they could do something. They were Jesus' disciples, after all. He'd given them authority to heal. They had the power. They could do something. And then the agony would be over. And they might settle into a new sort of normal, a, a kinder, gentler sort of normal. But as he told Jesus when he arrived, what he said while on his knees was, I brought him to your disciples and they were not able to heal him. The disciples, I presume the nine who were left behind as Jesus took three up on the mountain with him, were powerless. They should have been able to do something, but they could do nothing. What an extraordinary contrast with the glory and majesty and power on the mountain. And yet that contrast, that brokenness and inability which threatened to overwhelm the glory that they'd just seen, gave Jesus an opportunity to teach a powerful lesson about faith. True, real and powerful Christian faith. Faith in Christ. The first scene unfolds in three stages. First, Jesus responded to the desperate man's story with a cry of exasperation. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I bear with you? See, what was revealed at that moment was the same attitude as Moses had faced centuries before in the wilderness, where much the same words were used. The Israelites were doing it again. 
God's great saving acts had been unfolded right in front of their eyes and yet they were still faithless, still twisted in their thinking. At this moment in Matthew's Gospel, uh, to all who were watching this little exchange, Jesus' response to this man on his knees must have seemed entirely unreasonable. On the outside, this man appears to be utterly laudable, a man of faith, acting in faith. He brought his son to Jesus to be healed, as so many had done before. And yet Jesus saw his heart and knew that he was like the rest, without faith and all mucked up in his thinking. He'd asked for mercy for his son, by which he meant free him from this disease. He did not yet realise he needed mercy for himself as well as his son, for something much more terrifying than the disease that threatened his son's life time and again. He'd come for the healing. He'd come to receive what he wanted from the disciples and he'd been referred on to Jesus, but he'd not come to Jesus to learn from him, to follow him. He didn't really come with faith. He'd not yet understood who Jesus was or what he came to do. Second, uh, Jesus healed the boy. Not much detail given here. We do know that he didn't turn the man aside or send him away. He just said, bring him here to me. And he cast out the demon who had bound the boy up in this disease all these years and he was healed from that very hour. A simple, direct, powerful confrontation and the healing was instantaneous like visiting a medical specialist who knows exactly what the problem is and exactly how to treat it and you know immediately you're in good hands and there's going to be a good outcome. From that very hour, he was healed. But the third thing is the really important thing. The third thing is why this story needs to be told to us 2,000 years later and on the other side of the world. It's in Jesus' answer to the frustrated nine disciples who'd just not been able to exercise the authority they were given, at least not in this case. Why weren't we able to do that? They asked Jesus privately. Why couldn't we cast it out? And the clue is there in the very question that they ask. And Jesus said, because of your little faith, your oligopistion, pistion, that's why. It's not that they don't have enough faith and they somehow needed more. Jesus' words about the mustard seed make that point. You only need as much faith as a mustard seed. They're really, really small, aren't they? You only need that microscopic amount of faith if it's real faith, if it's faith in Jesus that acts and speaks and directs its attention to him that's what faith is and if you have that even in the smallest amount then nothing is impossible you see the idea that faith can exist in abstraction from its object that faith is a human quality a human disposition that some people have and other people don't have it's it's a nonsense really faith is not a mechanism either it's not a talisman which protects a person or gives them special powers. 
Those views of faith are all around us, aren't they? The next King of England wants to be known as defender of faith. This abstract, empty construct that you can fill with whatever content you like. Have faith in yourself, others suggest, and you can do anything. What you need to do is to grow your faith and you'll get what your heart desires. But friends, that's not faith. That's not faith as the New Testament describes faith. That's not faith as Jesus recognised faith. It's pretend faith, hollow faith, shadow faith, mini faith, little faith. Faith is not an instrument which enables you to get what you want. For you see, at the heart of faith is a relationship of trust between persons. And faith is only as real as the person in whom it is placed. What matters is not faith in some abstract sense, nor in some weird way, faith in faith, but faith in Jesus. The only thing that counts as faith is faith in Jesus. Faith centred on him, directed to him, guided by him. Faith that is nothing more or less than a relationship of trust in him. And when that relationship exists, nothing will be impossible because his plan and his purpose will shape your approach to everything else. No obstacle will be too big or too intractable. And yet, because it's all about him, I suspect you'd be praying bigger prayers than just getting the great dividing range to move a couple of kilometres that way. And that's why the next paragraph, sandwiched between these two unusual puzzling events, is so important. Because if real faith is faith in Jesus, not faith in my ability to do something, even something for Jesus, if real faith is not faith in faith, but faith in Jesus, then it's important to know what Jesus' mission is all about. Now, Jesus had spoken of his impending death and resurrection twice before this point. Just after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, Jesus began to tell them what was lying ahead of them in Jerusalem. And on the way down from the mountain on which the transfiguration had happened, Jesus had told the three again that the Son of Man will certainly suffer at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. And now he did it again. When they gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. You see, trusting Jesus means trusting this Jesus, the one who will be handed over, the one who will be killed, the one who will be raised. This is what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that means that faith in Jesus, just because it is faith in Jesus, doesn't take us away from the brokenness and twistedness of the world in every generation. It's found right there in the middle of it, in the middle of the world where Jesus was abused and killed and ultimately vindicated by being raised to life. How could faith be
be something we use for some other purpose, to obtain some other goal, when it is faith in this person, the one who was handed over and killed and only then raised. See, the, the abstract notion of faith, just faith, just faith, defender of faith. And the instrumental view of faith, faith is a means to achieving some other end for either myself or even for others. Both of those ideas are exposed as shallow and hollow and not really faith at all when they're put alongside Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And so the first thing that this passage teaches about faith, that it's, it's not abstract, nor is it a human achievement or power, but a personal relationship of trust, that truth is joined by a second. Faith in Jesus, that personal relationship of trust, is faith in Jesus crucified and risen. Not escape from the brokenness of the world, but trust in the middle of it. A personal relationship of trust in a person, and that person is the crucified and risen Messiah. Which takes us to the third of these little scenes, the strange incident of the tax and the fish. The temple tax, a levy on every male to assist with the upkeep of first the tabernacle and then when it was built the temple, has its origins in the laws of the book of Exodus. Eventually, an entire tractate of the Mishnah would be devoted to it. It was each family's contribution to the central reality of the nation, its corporate worship of the one true and living God at the temple. There were, in Jesus' time, apparently, collectors of the temple tax, the didrachma, in most major cities or towns throughout Israel, and a couple of them approached Peter. They wanted to confirm that Jesus saw himself as obligated to support the temple, to be a good Jewish citizen, to pay the tax. And Peter, rushing in as always, says, yes, of course he does. Like every other male between 50 and, uh, 20 and 50 years of age, of course he pays the tax. What is intriguing is that once that little exchange is over and Peter goes inside, it's not Peter who approaches Jesus, but Jesus who approaches him. This time it was not Peter who was taking the initiative, sorting this matter out for himself. Jesus had something he wanted to teach him. There was something Peter needed to understand. And what Jesus has to say to Peter adds one last little piece to the teaching that runs right through this section about faith. Peter needed to understand, as we need to understand, just who it is who was crucified and risen and what he's like. It was a simple question. When kings raise taxes, who pays? Do they tax their own families or others? And the answer is just as straightforward, isn't it? Um, of course it's others. The taxes raised to support the royal family and their service of the people... Those taxes are, tax are collected from the people. The families themselves are exempt. They are the recipients of the money after all. So go to one of the remaining absolute monarchies around the world, Saudi Arabia perhaps, and discover that the princes are actually bankrolled by the state. And as we've been reminded in this last week, 
in a different country and a different context, of course, when you walk away from those duties as a prince or a duke, you're no longer in that privileged position. Jesus was pointing out to Peter, who, as I said, had just rushed in again without thinking, that he has a unique relation to the temple because he has a unique relation to the Father who is called upon in the temple. He's not just another citizen subject to the temple tax like everyone else. The one who will soon be handed over, killed and raised cannot be domesticated as just another Jewish religious figure. And Peter should have realised that. After all, he'd just been up the mountain and he'd seen Jesus transfigured supreme and surpassing Moses and Elijah, not because he was more glorious than them, but because his glory was of an entirely different kind. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Faith in Jesus is faith in the one who, while crucified and risen, is always the beloved son with whom the Father is well pleased. What gives this handing over, this death and resurrection, such importance is that it is this one who is handed over and killed and raised. It is the beloved son, not just another religious functionary, not just a powerful miracle worker or gifted teacher, Faith in Jesus is faith in the crucified and risen Son of the living God who has a unique relation to the Father, who is the proper object of Israel's worship, not just another cog in Israel's worship machine. Faith takes its value. It, it takes its significance and importance from the one in whom we trust. Jesus is not just another part of the normal rhythm of life. Peter hadn't stopped to think what it really meant that Jesus had been transfigured on that mountain. He'd been deeply distressed, as the others had been, when they'd heard Jesus speak yet again about his coming death, this time with the added element of him being handed over. But he hadn't stopped to put that alongside the things he'd seen and heard, the glory on the mountain, the healing of the demon-possessed boy, the difference between little faith and real faith but despite being in that unique relation to the father or actually precisely because he was in that unique relation to the father Jesus didn't leave things there he's not interested in standing on his rights he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage and more than that his mercy extended even to the collectors of the temple tax in Capernaum. So, in order that we might not cause them to stumble. You can't imagine Jesus standing on his rights and refusing to pay the temple tax, can you? Why? Because he is the beloved son of the Father who came in order to be handed over, to be killed and to be raised. You see, faith in Jesus is faith in the beloved Son of the Father whose character is marked by service and compassion. Even for those who are still caught up in the faithless and twisted generation in which they live, 
who've not yet understood who he is and what this means. And so, without compromising the message to Peter that he's not just another temple taxpayer, and avoiding any reason for the temple tax collectors to stumble, except at the message he came to bring, Jesus directed Peter to go fishing, told him what he would find, use that to give to them for you and for me. Friends, on one side of these three little scenes stands the glory of the transfiguration. You know what stands on the other side? The disciples' interest in another kind of glory altogether. But here in the middle, we learn important lessons about real faith, faith in Christ. Firstly, there is no such thing as faith in abstract. Nor is faith simply a means of another end. The only thing that counts as faith is faith in Jesus. Trusting him. Not trusting ourselves and not even trusting our faith. The focus remains on him because faith is only as real as its object. And so what matters is not the size of your faith, but who you have faith in. The only thing that counts as faith is faith in Jesus. And secondly, faith in Jesus is faith in the one who was crucified and risen. It's exercised in the middle of a broken world, the same broken world in which he was handed over, killed and was raised. And thirdly, faith in Jesus crucified and risen is faith in the one whose character is always marked by service and compassion. He did not stand on his rights. He did not count equality with God something to hold on to or use to his own advantage. At every single point, he gave himself in order to rescue those caught up in the turmoil or simply the timetable of life in this world. So don't fall for the counterfeit little faiths on offer in our wider culture and tragically also in our churches, will you? Don't ever take your eyes off Jesus because the only thing that counts as faith is faith in him. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you might keep us from those distractions, keep us even from the distraction of ourselves and our preoccupation with our performance that cause us to take our eyes off Jesus. Help us to trust him in the midst of a broken and twisted world. And in doing that, Father, help us to give you the glory that is your due in him by your spirit. And we ask it of you for Jesus' sake.